Good morning, 930. We'll do it again. Good morning, 930. We're in this series. We just kicked it off last week entitled Bad Ideas About God. Ever have any? Yeah, you do. We do. I do. Last week we looked at Grandfather God, and this morning we're going to look at Guilt God. So play along with me. Use your imagination if you would. I know it's early, but let's say you're on a road trip. Say you're driving back from, I don't know, Oxford or Baton Rouge, and it's late, and you're riding, and around the corner, what you don't know is that a cop car is hiding. And as you pass him going 25, 30 miles an hour over the speed limit, uh, you, you see, uh, it seems in your memory, what you just saw is a silhouette of a man uh, pointing a hairdryer at you. Oh, wait, that's not a hairdryer. That's a radar, a speed detection gun. What's going through your mind at that point? A couple of dominant emotions, right? Fear, guilt, guilt, fear, fear, and guilt. And you do that, that checklist, right? You, you slow down, you think seatbelt, license, insurance, registration, and you're glancing, every second you're glancing at your rear view, just waiting on the blue light special. And you know those feelings of shame or guilt and fear that enter in and remain in your mind in those seconds or minutes, there's something deeper than that in our lives. It's a, what I would call a cosmic set of assumptions about God, that God himself is that cop around the corner. And he's hiding in the dark with his lights off, pointing a gun at you, waiting to catch you, waiting to say, gotcha, you're guilty. I have a friend who, when he was young in his very formative years, he had to go to a religious boarding school. Strong rules, strict dress code, stern authority figure. He had to, he had to attend. And one summer, he, he got back from his summer break and he was observed by the headmaster of having his hair way too long. It was a couple of inches too long. So this headmaster forcibly marched this mullet man and his other long-haired friends onto a beat-up school bus. They had no idea where they were being taken until they got to this Air Force Base barber shop. And there, all the heads were shaved. And my friend remembers this headmaster saying to them, let this be a lesson to you. Oh, and it was. It was a lesson. It was a lingering lesson. A lesson that my friend, it stayed with him. It took about 15 years for him to ever be able to conceive of the concept of a loving God, of a good God. God to him was distant, a distant authority figure. Now, I'm not an expert psychologist like maybe some of you. I know we'll have a couple at the 11 o'clock service, but psychologists tell us that this conception of God can be formed, particularly this one, at an early age from an authority figure, a parent, a coach, a teacher, a boss. And this is, this serving this guilt God, it is, let's be clear, it's a, it's a fear-based faith. It's rule-ridden people following a, a rule-ridden God, and it's a fear-based faith. And a fear-based faith, I want to say it this morning for you note-takers, a fear-based faith is when we spend more time avoiding rather than enjoying. And I studied at a Presbyterian seminary back in the day, and I appreciate the theology, I appreciate 
the Westminster Confession of Faith that says the chief end of man, man meaning a generic term, men and women, the chief end of humanity is what? It's to glorify God and to what? Some of you can say it, and to what? Say it, 930, come on. And what? Enjoy him forever. But a rule-ridden person following a rule-ridden God who sees God as a distant authority figure, who sees God as a cop around a corner waiting, hiding in the dark, ready to get you, who has a permanent record of all your wrongs, that fear-based faith will make you spend more time avoiding, avoiding what? Avoiding bad stuff rather than enjoying a good God. Life is so much more about this. This doesn't work too well. If your religion is fear-based, if it's about avoiding. But God says there's more. In fact, what I learned in seminary is right and what some of you know. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So this morning as we uh, talk about how we can be victimized by the bad idea of guilt, God, I want us to be fortified by the truth of his word. Okay, so turn with me to Psalm 16. We're going to look at one verse from this great passage of scripture, Psalm 16 and verse 11. Psalm 16, 11. Some of you are turning and the rest of us are going, hey, it's right here. Hello, it's right here. I used to serve at a church that had big, big screens, you know, one in the center and two on the aisles, big screens. And people in the front row would, would, I'd be up preaching or speaking, people in the front row would look at the screen. I'm like, I'm here, I'm right here, look at me. Psalm 1611, here's a prayer to God. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures evermore. Circle the word joy. Circle the word pleasures. And circle the word path. We'll consider all three of those in its context today. That dominant word, joy. The chief end of man, glorify God and enjoy joy, joy. Enjoy him forever. Joy is a big deal. You serve, or you're called to serve, a happy God. It almost sounds, I almost sound like a heretic saying that, right? But you serve a happy God. You serve a God that wants to invite you into his happiness. And Jesus taught, and he taught, and he said, hey, hey guys, I'm teaching you these things, those those guys were his closest followers. He said, I'm teaching you these things. Why? I'm teaching you these things so that you would have joy. That you would have joy, that the joy that you have, that it would be in you, that it would be complete, and that no one would be able to take that joy. Stop. Refresher. Jesus is teaching so that you would have joy, that the joy would be in you, that the joy would be full, and that no one would be able to take away that joy. Big deal. To Jesus. Here's what it, the the night the night before the night before his capture his execution his crucifixion. 
He's speaking to his disciples. And so it, it means it's a very tender scene. But John, as he presents it to us in John 16, there's, it's almost like a, a comical take on it. Look, if you would, at John 16. This is John 16, I believe, verse 21 to 23. Or 19. To, yeah, go back. Yeah, go back. I'm sorry. Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more. And then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying in a little while you will see me no more and then after a little while you will see me? And because I'm going to the Father, they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, are you asking one another what I mean when I said in a little while you will see me no more and then after a little while you will see me? It's like who's on first, right? I love this, by the way. The, the, the students are behind the teacher's back, right? Well, what does he mean? What, do you ever do that? That's what, that's what we do naturally, right? We don't want to raise our hand. We don't want to directly ask the teacher when it's perplexing. So we, we talk about, what, what's he saying? What's she saying? We do that behind the back. Jesus is aware of this and talks to them about it. What, what does he mean? What's he saying? He goes on in John 16. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Every woman in the room is just questioning the wisdom of Jesus. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, in that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very, very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. I remember when I became a dad. It was our oldest, not tomorrow, but the day after he turns 18. So a little over 18, he's 6'2", pushing 6'3". I mean, it happens, right? But a little over 18 years ago, Susan and I were living in South Florida, and she told me that we were going to take Lamaze classes. And in Lamaze classes, maybe they've changed it. I hope they have. But back then, back in the day, 18 some years ago, you were, you were taught to never, as a, as a man who's quote unquote coaching his wife, you were taught to never use the word pain. You can use the word discomfort, but not pain. But you're coaching her. What was I coaching her, right? I mean, what, what was the point of coaching? Well, I learned that I was coaching her to breathe, which she had been doing very well all of her life. But deep breaths and when that day came when we when we went to the hospital we were timing contractions and rushing to south miami hospital and we got there and the labor y'all i mean it was labor i bet i bet susan experienced some discomfort and it was hours upon hours okay and i'm telling you i was there and i was a good coach i think i was a good coach i was there at her side I, for all those hours, I was bent over. I was talking to her and encouraging her. I was rubbing her back hour after hour. My, my back was sore. My hands were hurting. I, I didn't complain one time. Not one time did I say any word of complaint. To this day, Susan doesn't appreciate what I went through. <laughs> but here's what I want to say. Some of you, many women, you know this to be true. Susan can still remember the pain. Jesus is not saying that a woman gives a ba uh, has birth, gives birth to a baby and suddenly gets amnesia. His point is there will be joy. 
And that joy is so great that by perspective, she won't remember that pain. And Jesus is teaching us something. He's teaching us something that people who grieve and lose, and we know yesterday every single football team in the state of Mississippi lost, right? Every single one of us. So let's just do a big, let's meet right here for a group hug, right? That kind of loss, especially the older you get, and I'm getting older, those things don't matter to me like they used to matter. But what I know as I live life and as I'm a husband and a parent and a pastor and a friend, losing hurts. Pain can get the best of you, and don't call it discomfort because it's pain, it hurts. And as your pastor, I, I see what some of you are going through. And I feel like we collectively as a body, a, a, a church called Fonder, and there's a lot of us that are hurting right now. And what I love about Jesus is he said, in this world you will have trouble. It's going to hurt. He likens it to a woman giving birth. But he says there will be a day. There will be a day that in the end, joy will win. At first, pain, but then joy. In the end, joy will win. It was a big deal to Jesus. Not only did it teach about it, not only did he say that you're going to have joy, the joy's going to be in you, the joy's going to be full, that nobody can take away your joy. Jesus taught it, but he also lived it. Hebrews 12, 2 says that we ought to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter, the finisher of our faith. What, who for the Joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. Nothing pretty about that. Enduring the cross, despising its shame. Pain. But for the joy set before him. The early church, joy was a mark. Can I say this? When the church was at its best and its, its flourishing self, joy was a hallmark of the early church. It says in Acts that, listen to this, that they rejoiced that they have been counted worthy to suffer in his name. It goes on to describe the church uh, in, in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 8, 2. It says that they were going through severe trouble, extreme poverty, but they overflowed with joy and they were rich in generosity. Did you hear that? They were, they were going through severe trials, extreme poverty, but yet... They overflowed with joy and they were rich in their generosity. What the scripture says long ago is what the experts on fundraising say today. That the richest people are not necessarily, many times are not the most generous. And this early church, despite what they didn't have, they were overflowing with generosity. They were rich toward God and others. They had this vibrant joy that moved them forward. They rejoiced. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer in his name. There's a word in this passage that I ask you to consider, one of the three, it's the word path. It's the word path. It's a word that's used often in scripture, beautifully in the Psalms and in the Proverbs. And there's a path. There's a road that we need to walk. Anybody remember back in the day before there were 600 channels on television, before there were DVRs and on-demand movies, there were networks, three of them, and they decided what we would or would not watch every single day and every single night. 
And my family and I, we were so pleased that at least once a year, though on Sunday night, they would show The Wizard of Oz. And everybody, almost everybody, knows the storyline of Dorothy, and Dorothy wants to go back home. Because home is so sweet, right? It, what adolescent thinks that way these days, right? Dorothy just can't wait to get home, but it's a fairy tale. Dorothy wants to go home. And Dorothy runs into the, the, the witch from the east and the witch from the east tells her that the way to get home is through a man named Oz and you've got to see Oz. And to get there, uh, you've got to go to this land. And how do you get to that land? Everybody knows you've got to follow the yellow brick road. A clear path. She does that with her fun cast of characters that you're all aware of. She follows the yellow brick road. Don't you wish there was a yellow brick road to a happy marriage where you'd want to go home every day? Don't you wish there was a yellow brick road to health, prosperity? Don't you wish there was a yellow brick road that would get you out of the fear and the shame and the guilt and the depression that clings to you so tightly? Don't you wish there was a yellow brick road to take you to that place that you dream about, that you want to be that ideal life that's in the forefront of your mind? Don't you wish you had a yellow brick road? And God is saying to us that there is a path. You, you will show me. You have shown me the path of life. The path of life. There is this road. And the direction of your life, it really, really matters. What road are you on? This morning in talking about a road, I want to talk about, I want to borrow from a writer that I've really been uh, impacted by this last year. And he calls something, he calls it a cycle of grace. And he says that the life that God blesses, the life that God honors, the life God calls us to is a cycle. The path of, of life ought to be a cycle of grace, not works, not a fear-based faith, right? A rule-ridden person with a rule-ridden God that makes it about avoiding and not enjoying that person who serves a guilt God. It's about works. It's that, you know, that permanent record. It's that cop around the corner waiting to stop you and catch you for the next thing that you do wrong. And it's easy. It doesn't just have to be formative in our early years with parents and teachers and coaches and bosses. I mean, right now, today, we live in a world, you and I live in a world where we catch each other doing wrong and there's punishment and justice is, is meted out. I've never had an officer pull me over and say, hey, thank you for driving the speed limit. There's probably a reason he hadn't done that, but thank you, Pastor, for driving this. Thank you for yielding, right? You, you're, you've shown preference to the people around you. I've never gotten a letter from the IRS saying, hey, thanks, every year you guys pay on time. Thank you very much, right? We don't get that. We, we're caught when we're doing wrong. And so we want to work and work and work and work. But this writer calls this path the cycle of grace. And here, he starts, okay, it's, we, we got to go clockwise here. If you can see this, he starts with, he starts with acceptance. I have no idea where to pull, put this board here in the 930, but he calls it acceptance. When Jesus was baptized, scripture gives, of, uh, gives us an account, and when he comes up out of the water, there, there was a, a dove descending, the spirit descending like a dove, rather, and it says that Jesus heard the Father's voice. Hear me. He heard the Father's voice. Yesterday, I did a wedding at 5.30 in our sanctuary. We married a, young, a couple from our church, John and Cynthia. John's from Pennsylvania. Cynthia's from Peru. And her father read a scripture. He read 1 Corinthians 13 in Spanish. We heard the Father's voice, and it was beautiful. 
Jesus hears his father's voice. And it says this, scripture tells us in Matthew 3, 17, and a voice from heaven said, this is my son who I love. With him, I am well pleased. Jesus' life started hearing the father's voice. This is my son, that's identity. Whom I love, that's worth and value. In whom I am well pleased, that's joy and delight. He hears the voice of his father. You and I often talk about accepting Jesus. But probably what's more important than that is that Jesus accepts you. To hear the father's voice. There's the path. There's the path to enjoyment. Is to realize that it starts with acceptance. And then in the cycle of grace, there's sustenance. And sustenance is, how can you remain? How can you abide? How can it stay with you? How can you live it out day to day? There's a book in my office that says, people are not the problem. Now, that's a stupid title because people seem to be, always be the problem, right? What's your, what's your problem? What problem is pressing in on you right now? I guarantee you there's a person, right? There's somebody you're thinking of. But Jesus never let others take away his joy. He sustained it. And what did Jesus do to sustain the joy in his life? Jesus immersed his mind in scripture. Jesus worship. We've preached this before, but in the gospel of Luke, it tells us that he went to the temple regularly to worship as was his custom. He did what we're doing now. He took a regular time to worship the father. He prayed. He enjoyed God's creation. He went on long walks. He went fishing at the lake. He, he, he got to the garden. He enjoyed the beauty of creation around him. He hung out with, let me put it this way, let me be clear. He partied with the irreligious crowd. Look what it says here. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus partied. Jesus hung out with the non-religious crowd. He was able to sustain and to experience the father because of the habits and the practices in his life. For some of us, it's foolish. It's foolish for us to think that we can have an occasional religious experience where we hear or seem to hear the father's voice and then we can go our way in disregard, but Jesus had regular habits and practices of enjoyment. He, he filled his tank with what he enjoyed. You know, there's a lot of people running on empty today. Do you know that? How many of you, you look regularly at the gas gauge in your automobile? And how many of you, man, you're aware of it. How many of you kind of, you run the risk factor, you let it get pretty low? Right, or you do that with your spouse and you, and you take your car home that's low and then you switch cars, right? And you're gone and they're there and they gotta go to the gas station, right? I've heard rumors about that. Never done that at home, but I've heard about it. But you know, if, if you had a gauge, a joy gauge, is it full? I mean, we come to church today to ultimately learn from Jesus, right? And Jesus said, I'm teaching you all these things, again, that you would have joy, that it would be in you, that it would be full, that no one could take it from you. How is your gauge on joy this morning? Are you running on empty? Here's the trouble with the religious crowd. 
And you and I can be victimized. A lot of times we think, oh, I'm running on empty because I'm serving the Lord. And we wear it as a badge of honor. We think our emptiness is a God-honoring thing, and it's not. I was rocked this week to see a pastor that I admire stand up and say, no scandal, no scandal. As far as we know, no scandal. It's usually a scandal, but there's no scandal. He stands up in front of his church in Nashville that he started 14 years ago and says, I'm, we, we want to be a place where we say that it's okay to not be okay. And he stood before his church and he said, I'm not okay. I'm tired and I'm broken. And leaders can't run on empty for long. And I've been running on empty for a long time. Y'all, it's so much more about avoiding for us, but it needs to be about enjoying. Are you full? Jesus took time to laugh and to have joy, to enjoy the Father, to pray, to go on long walks, to fish, to do things that brought him life. He partied with the irreligious crowd, even got accused of being something that he's not, and he sustained is this cycle of grace. He heard the Father's acceptance of him, and he sustained it. And the third component of the cycle of grace is significance. Now, what's the first four letters in the word significance? Sign. In other words, here on this side, acceptance and sustenance is about God's joy flowing to you. But on this side, it's about God's joy flowing through you. And we all have to be very aware. We all hold intention. I'm finding this to be true with pastors especially, of leaders, but we all have to hold this input-output tension, right? Input-output. And people that serve the Lord, people that bear his name, many, many times are joyless. It's a fear-based faith. And this significance here, I don't know if you know this, but when Jesus was baptized and the Spirit descends like a dove and he hears the voice of the Father saying, this is my Son in whom, I'm, in whom I love and I'm well pleased, do you know what happened right after that? He goes to the wilderness to be tempted. In fact, look at the design of God in this thing. Scripture tells us in Matthew chapter 4, right after this, uh, right after the baptism, it says that the Son was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And there... We get an account where the enemy says to the Son of God, prove it, prove it, prove it. If you're the Son of God, 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 turn these stones into bread. If you're the Son of God, he takes him to the top, top place of the temple and says, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. Why? Because it's written, it's written that the angels will catch you. He takes him to the top place of the mountain and says, look at the kingdoms of this world. And he says... It can be yours if you bow down, if you are the son of God. In other words, you've heard the voice of the father. You've heard the love and acceptance that he's spoken into your life. You've sustained it. Here you are with this temptation to say, I must prove, I must prove, I must prove. And fear-based religion does that. Fear-based religion doesn't enjoy, but it avoids and it says, I must prove my worth. I must prove, I must prove, I must work, I must work. And the life of Jesus teaches us to hear the Father's voice and to learn regularly to continue to hear the Father's voice spoken into your life. And then we live a life of significance as we learn to give ourselves away. Sign, 
We are to be a sign. Jesus said, you are what? The salt of the earth and the light of the world. You are, what does a sign do? A sign points. We started this 930 service and one of the things our staff team had to do, had to do a lot of things, but we had to get signs. We had to get signs to tell people where to go. We probably need more signs. Say, go this way. And the cycle of grace, the path, is acceptance and sustenance and, uh, and significance. And living a life of significance is that your life points to somebody. Your life points to the happy God, the joyous Savior. And lastly, we see achievement. The disciples at one point looked to Jesus and they were, they were, they were eating. And Jesus had this fast going on. And they said, hey, come, come eat. And Jesus said this, my will, my food rather, is to do the will of the Father. Do we have that? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus desires that we work. Jesus desires. In fact, we think, we think, we think we're gonna replenish our life and add to our joy when we get away and, what, and do nothing. I'm just gonna do nothing. Anybody try to get away and do nothing? I've given up on that. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you can correct me later. But I've given up on the veg and do nothing. But I don't think it's an absence of work. I think it's the experience of his presence. Jesus was about the Father's work. But what we do, what we do is reverse this. In other words, the cycle of grace, this author says, the cycle of grace goes, it goes clockwise. But the, the cycle of works goes counter. Now I get this right? The cycle of works goes counterclockwise. And we say, I'm going to achieve something. I'm going to do something significant. I'm going to do something significant for God. And if it's fear-based, it's, well, I've done all these bad things, so let me make up for it, and I'm going to do these good things, and I'm going to achieve some things, and I'm going to be a great witness. I'm going to pastor a church. I'm going to adopt some kids. I'm going to go to India. I'm going to give money. I'm going to do these things, and I'm going to, I'm going to achieve, and then, then I'll feel significant. And that significance, no matter what the world throws at me, I'll be able to sustain it because I'm doing these things for God. But it starts here. It starts from you and I, the life of joy, hearing the Father's voice, knowing our identity, and then our value and our worth, and his joy and delight in you. Now, a parent, a teacher, a coach, or a boss, or some headmaster at a religious boarding school could have really messed this up for you. But there is a father, Jesus would say to you, there's a father who delights in you, who wants you, he wants you to enjoy him. Now back to what Jesus taught the disciples. Jesus said in John 16, he said that no one can take this joy away from you. I remember when, when we were parents, when that almost 18-year-old was just a little toddler and I had, we, we were not prepared for the barrage of questions that he would ask us. Dad, why this? Why this? How did this? How did it? Just on a question after question after question. And when I would stay home with him all day, those days, man, it just wore me out. There were moments I just want to have a meltdown because of all of his questions. And Susan was with him almost every day, all day. And one day I... I decided to, to flip it on him. We were in the car and I had this idea. I'm just going to ask him a bunch of questions. 
Hey, how, why do birds fly? How does a car go? How does gas get in the car? Why does the gas make the car go? Why are all these cars? Why, you know, on and on. Just, and he just, he was, I mean, he was looking confused and troubling. Susan got excited. She's like, keep going, Robert. Keep going. Make him cry. Make him cry, right? Ever thought about how many questions the disciples asked Jesus? Ever thought about that? Now, this summer, we looked at a series, or this spring, we looked at a series, questions Jesus asked. But what about the questions they asked him? Hey, Jesus, hey, Jesus, can we be at your right hand? Hey, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive this guy? Hey, Jesus, why was this man born blind? Hey, Jesus, why can't we cast out this demon? Hey, Jesus, can we call down fire from heaven? Hey, Jesus, what about that parable? Hey, Jesus, what about this parable? I don't understand it. Hey, Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom? Hey, Jesus, what do you mean after a little while? Hey, Jesus, hey, Jesus, hey, Jesus. There's a lot of questions. But Jesus said in this verse, I don't know if you caught it in John 16, look at it later, but Jesus said there's going to be a day, a day in a little while. It's not going to seem like a little while, but in the scale of eternity, it's a little while where joy will win. It doesn't seem like a little while because it hurts because there's pain. There's cancer and there's hunger, and there's war, and there's racism. There's division. There's the 2016 presidential election. There are just things that are just going to wear you down and hurt your soul. But you wait a little while until that day. And you know what Jesus said? It's there in John 16. That day, you won't have any more questions. One brilliant writer put it this way. This gets to me. It is the nature of joy that all questions grow silent and nothing needs explaining. Now we can argue all day if Jesus was pestered by those questions. I kind of think he was. One day. Here's what I used to think about heaven. I could be wrong. But I used to think, oh, I can't wait. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God. I'm going to ask God. Oh, I'm going to find, I'm going to, I'm going to ask God. Well, I can't wait. I'm going to, I'm going to get to God. I'm going to ask him. Maybe we're not asking him anything. Maybe the joy is so great. Because as Paul said, now we know in part, but one day we're going to know in full. And what we're going to know is joy, fullness of joy and some of you need to know this morning that there will be a day there will be a day and on that day joy will win the pangs the birth pangs will be over and the joy will be so great could you imagine that the pain doesn't even need to be explained because we'll get it no more questions pray with me